This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that says vote one, Motley Fool. That's right, it's election season for all of our sins, once every three years. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, is Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. G'day, Captain. How are you, bud? I'm electionified. Oh, electionified. Electionified. I love it. <laughs> Mate, I'm thinking we should start a Motley Fool party. What do you reckon? Oh, I think it's look great. Who's standing, though? Oh, you and I, for starters. Okay. I'll let you stand. No, you can do it, too. Okay. You can be our information economy minister. That sounds like good. You like that? Yeah, let's see. I'm, I'm, you're already. Yeah, I can make a contribution. See, we've already got two members for the party, mate. Will Porter, our, our producer, will absolutely join along, and the, the three of us will start the Motley Fool Party. By this time tomorrow, mate, there'll be still three members. Oh, we'll do it. Oh, may- maybe more. Vote one Motley Fool. Hashtag Motley Fool Party if you're listening <laughs> and you want to join the party on Twitter. <laughs> this is officially not an official party, and there is no you know authorized buy and blah blah blah. But you know, mm. hit us up on Twitter. Hashtag Motley Fool Party. See how many we can get going. You know what? By this time next week, we are actually standing for an election. That'd be awesome. kind of fun. That would be great. What do you reckon the boss would say? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to venture even no. to guess. All right. <laughs> Other than that on this week's podcast, we will talk the election very briefly, but stay with us. We promise it won't be too long. We'll talk about the RBA's view on rates and what the market thinks as well. We'll talk about our banks. Bank of Queensland, BOQ, reported earnings this week, and it was... Not pretty. We'll talk about winners and losers. There's a pun there. We'll get to that in a minute. Mm. And another twist in the tail for West Farmers Alliance. I mean, I wasn't even following this that particularly closely, but you gave me a heads up this morning. There's some stuff going on, including with the corporate cops. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. And if we have time, we will dip into the full mailbag. Let's get on with it. Let's do it. Mate, what do we say? So yesterday morning, we're recording this on Friday morning, as we always do, or almost always. Yesterday morning, Scott Morrison jumped in the the government BMW, the company car, headed down to Yarralumla, knocked on the Governor-General's door and said, uh, Sir Peter, I'd like you to call an election, which is all that needs to happen. That's going to happen. The writs will be issued. All that good, f- fun Senate stuff happens. I'm kind of a politics nerd, so I've got to say, as much as I pretend I don't like it, I'm kind of you know, excited about the whole thing. I do like my politics. I'll be watching closely on election night as the tallies come through, the wins and losses. It's kind of my thing. Not necessarily everybody's thing, though. Question for you. Where do investors get the best read on the election? And do we, or should we, really care? Well, so I'm not, I'm not a big fan of um, elections like uh, like you are, <laughs> largely because they, they sound more like a shouting contest to me. You know? So you're not going to join me for the Motley Fool Politics podcast? Well... I will, <laughs> but 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 I'd rather not be part of a shouting contest. And, oh, my policy! And, oh, my policy! And, oh, no, that policy is wrong and rubbish. You know, yeah, they're both rubbish. That sounds familiar. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I mean, dear, m- dear. most newspapers um, cover yep. politics, right? Me I mean, uh, uh, so uh, SMH or um, you know, uh, the, the Age, Fin, Mail. the yep. Fin, the Age—they all uh, have it. You know, if you have uh, Twitter. <laughs> I'm sure Twitter will give you. Um, Already does, uh, yes. Yeah, you know, it'll, you know, there'll probably be a hashtag for the Aussie <laughs> election. So lots of ways to follow it. Um, it's important and not important at the same time. I mean, yeah. you know, it's important because the government or the government of the day can make decisions and does make decisions that impact um uh, investing, all right. types of investing, right? It in, impacts not just share yeah, investing, yeah. property investing, uh, investing in bonds and everything, right? All the good stuff. All yep. the good stuff. And and it, it doesn't matter in the sense that, you know, uh, there's one government for 
three years, sometimes yes. actually less than three years. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and 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 then the next one comes and it makes some decisions, mm -hmm. right? So you can't really predict, you know, into the future what's going to happen. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a bit of a, um, yeah, I, I like to see what they do, but I don't, you know, consider. Without asking you to declare your hand, because we won't talk politics necessarily, at least mm -hmm. we won't talk voting. Do you consider each party's uh, investing implications as you go to the polls? Um, yes and no. <laughs> yes and no in the sense that, uh, um, you know, I like certain certain policies are more favorable to long-term investing, yep. right? So, so, for example, if you are reducing um, uh, selfishly, from my own point of view, if I'm mm -hmm. investing money, I like the capital gains tax benefit. Like, I mean, right. it's, it's a great benefit to have, right? If that gets cut, um, you know, I feel the pinch, and I'm sure all investors feel the pinch, right? Yep. Um, uh, but at the same time, I get the view that you know who's investing well. You know, uh, the people who can afford to invest, and therefore there's a there's a there's a class and group of people who are not able to invest and who therefore need the society's support. And therefore, right, you know, right. if we take money from these guys, but I mean, you can make all sorts of arguments, right? There's an argument that you should tax the rich mm -hmm. or tax the people who are making more money. But uh, I can also make an argument that, you know, you, you if you tax the people who are working hard, then they will stop working hard. And is that actually useful, you know? Uh, right. So there's all sorts of discussion. Maybe there should be a minimum wage that you guarantee to people and then basically have a flat tax, um, at, you know, uh, for everyone. That, you know, if basically that says that there's nobody's going to be disadvantaged, but those people who want to work hard get, get to work hard, right? Without being uh, penalized in some sense for working hard, right? Yep. So the... So I do consider it like you know it's a very it's a difficult decision to make personally when I go to vote without you know saying how you know I yeah, often sure. actually look at just the local candidate mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and my vote is often actually not decided by what's happening actually at the federal level but rather who the candidate is okay. right and you know if I like the candidate and you know I think that they're going to make some difference to my electorate then I vote for that candidate irrespective of what I actually think about um uh, that's how I've voted in the past. That's how I vote actually even in the uh, in the local elections, right? Instead of actually considering what, you know, uh, Scott Morrison or uh, Bill Shorten are going to mm, do. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I you know, I, I've actually, you know, made up my mind this this time. How am I vote? I have not. Oh, you haven't? I have okay. not. You you know. Stay tuned, fools. We <laughs> definitely won't be talking about that <laughs> But you have not. But, you know, that's why I said, you know, again, yeah. it depends on what the, who the local candidate is going to be and what they're saying. So. Last one. Very good. Uh, yeah, look, I th my only, we, we, we may or may not cover some of the policies that later in the later in the month, mate, as we get closer to the election, if, if our listeners want to hear about them, we're happy to kind of go through them, not to give a judgment necessarily, but just to, I guess, cover those ones that matter for investors as we are an investing podcast. Um, the only thing I would say broadly for our listeners is to think about not just the first order, but also the second order consequences. So second order thinking is a thing that's, I mean, maybe we should do a podcast about second order thinking at one point, Doc, but mm -hmm. The um, the idea is basically the first the first order thing is what happens immediately. So if I if I do a thing, what's you know the equal opposite reaction that is it Newton would have said? Um, we think about that now, that, and that that's true in a very simplistic sense. In life, because we're you know society is a complex series of feedback loops, there are often second and third order impacts. In other words, if I do a thing, something else happens immediately. But what else does that create, or what happens after that? So for example, one one key element would be as an investor. You know, do I want to pay less or more tax on my capital gains? Well, that's a meaningful question. The, th the, the bigger question, though, is if I'm going to be investing for the next 25 years, what set of policies are most likely to generate the sorts of conditions that maximize the profits made by the companies I, I own, for example, that actually may be a larger impact than the capital gains tax changes or may not? And that's kind of one of those second order impacts, right? So the, the a bit, same thing with um, uh, wage increases you mentioned is, is a good one, right? So people say, well, you know, if, if, if people if I have to pay more tax and, uh, and other people get paid more money, then I lose out. That can be true. The second order impact might be that 
if lower paid workers get more money, then they may spend more money. It actually might mean my companies make more profit. So it's kind of one of those questions, that, and that may not be true as well, by the way. There's a counterfactual for everything. But it's worth thinking about those second-order impacts as you think about how you might vote. And, of course, like most people, we'll also be considering more than just the investment angle when we personally vote. Uh, this podcast, we may cover the investment implications just because that's our job. Um, but we'll see how we go as we get closer to the date. That's enough on elections, isn't it? That's on. I think so. Thank goodness. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, I said that's enough on elections and that was true. The problem is now we're going to talk about the RBA. <laughs> So, I, I love I love talking about RBA. Well, it's, it's, a, go, it's a government body, but I'm fairly not entirely neutral. sure that our, our listeners want to listen to us talk about the RBA is my concern. But <laughs> we, we we have a we have a uh, we have a responsibility to do the right thing. And so, the, you mentioned kind of some of the bigger impact issues, right? The RBA is is maybe the largest lever when it comes to policy right across the political mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of regulatory spectrum. Um, governments change things here and there, but when the RBA either pulls or pushes that interest rate lever, that has wide-ranging ramifications mm-hmm. and, and a lot of ripples, right? The old, the old yep. rock in the pond thing. The RBA for... there's a real I, I don't know if it's just me. There's a really loud chorus of people who are saying, the RBA should cut rates, they should cut them now, we know best. Mm-hmm. And they've kind of been ranting for a while. And the RBA has been stubbornly or maybe just ignoring them altogether, just simply going along its merry way, not cutting rates. Say, like, well, there's risks, but yeah, well, things might be okay. They've been what we like to call in the trade dovish. Hawkish would be they're taking decisive action to make some changes to cut rates to do some good things. Dovish is kind of letting just things play out a little bit longer, not taking big mm. kind of, you know, impactful actions. To some level, the RBA have been incredibly dovish. They've been really reticent to cut rates any further, despite the growing chorus of people who are really keen for them to do so and getting louder and louder in their provocations. And right now, at least, the market, I wouldn't say necessarily agrees because it's the market's job to anticipate the RBA rather than to pass judgment. But right now, both the RBA is, is seeming pretty relaxed and the market has, has basically removed any chance that there's a whole lot of pricing mechanisms we won't go into because it'll bore me to tears and bore our listeners even more. Um, basically, the market, the short-term money market on different maturities, so if you're putting your money off for three or six or nine months, the rate you get is the market's best guess is where rates would be by then because they're trying to match those off, right? So if the official cash rate's going to get lower by then, you'll get a lower rate. It's going to be higher by then, you get a higher rate. The market had been pricing in one or two rate cuts, uh, one potentially before the election or certainly straight after, that's gone effectively to zero those chances according to the market. So at least investors are kind of picking up what the RBA is laying down, if I can use that horrible expression to make myself sound like I'm 14 again. Um, everything seems to be okay. Yeah, you know, as much as I, I, I would criticize both political parties for, and, 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 and I hate this bringing uh, politics back, you know, I love what the RBA, RBA does. You know, it's um, as as a as a central banker, yeah. their job is to look at data and make data based decisions. And as a scientist, that really floats your boat. And, and, and it it really makes me happy awesome. <laughs> that they actually do that job really really well. Right, I mean, you know, they look at the data and say, "Oh, you know, okay, the economy is not growing at a super fast rate, mm-hmm. but it's not shrinking." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 you know, um, okay, people were not buying many cars a couple of months back, but hey, they're back to buying cars, right? Mm-hmm. So the economy is doing just fine, and uh, you know, anybody who expects the Australian economy is going to grow at like five percent is then, you know, <laughs> is, is just being Donald uh, Trump. <laughs> well, even Donald Trump wouldn't expect <laughs> the Australian economy to, you know, he only said 4% or 3.5% oh, or something right. like okay, that, right? That's right? So 5%. Is like, you know, the economy is doing fine. Yeah. And, and if anything, I would say the RBA should 
have continued with increasing or should have followed the other other uh, central banks in increasing rates, right. uh, which would have given them more firepower if we land up in a trouble mm-hmm. or in, in a in a in a you know in a in a spot that yeah. we don't want to be. So I think RBI is doing the right thing. I think the market was just being. Uh, and RBI has come out and said that you know the house price decline hasn't mm. had that kind of impact which people thought would have. Right? That's the whole wealth effect thing. The, the orthodoxy was supposed to be that as prices fell, people feel poorer, they stop spending, exactly. the economy goes into a tailspin. So far, at least, touch wood, that hasn't that happened. That is a, so. So I love the fact that they're following the data, and yeah. and you know, following the data is the right thing to do here. You know, what would you if you cut the rates further? I mean, you know, it's going to again go back to creating the same sort of spiral, and then you right. have no room fi- for firepower. So you know, when 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 the RBA needs it, I thought I think it's great. I think the. Um, RBI is doing a fantastic job. I love it. I completely agree with you, man. Greg McKenna, who's a, a very smart bloke, um, who's on Sky with me occasionally, uh, or your money as they call it now, um, was saying the same thing. He reckons the RBI is one of the best central banks in the world. Like, I actually completely agree. I think they've done a, a really good job of, of not bowing to pressure from any angle, uh, whether that be the, the, the rate cut brigade or the rate increase brigade or the anyone brigade, and saying, look, we're going to do what's right for the economy. Um, thankfully for them, they don't have the same pressure of, of the, have, uh, Jerome Powell in the US, who has the president yelling at him every month. Um, but in any case, they've still got the, the sense of you know independence, and, and they seem to be doing. We won't know until the hard part about central banking is you don't know until after the fact whether That's it's right. right or wrong. Yeah. Uh, as you said, we should explain the firepower thing. So the idea basically is that if and when the economy gets into trouble, the central bank can lower rates potentially very quickly mm-hmm. to either stimulate the economy or simply just slow the decline. So to the extent that people start to get worried, the RBA says, we're here, we're taking action. And that's as much a confidence as a real economy thing to my mind, I think, Doc, I have to say. I don't know that cutting rates by half a point means anything material to most of our lives most of the time. I mean, if we're still got a job, we get cheaper mortgages, but nothing else happens. But as a society, we kind of feel better knowing that someone's out there, you know, like Superman in the red cape, right? They're kind of doing something so we can relax because someone's got it under control. Either way, to be able to cut rates, you need to have rates that are high enough to give you room to cut. I mean, they can physically go negative, which is a whole different conversation. But pretty broadly, um, you want to have rates high enough that you can cut them meaningfully, but still to a level that's above zero and has something, some sort of heft left, right? So we know they cut rates really hard during the GFC, quite a long way, quite quickly. Um, Different circumstances now. But yeah, I agree with you. I I don't want to be critical of the RBA. Morgan Housel, who was an ex-Motley Fool um, employee who now does his own thing with the Collaborative Fund, said once that, I think he was talking about one of the central bankers, I can't remember who it was, it may have been, who was the most recent one before Powell? Jenny um, Yellen. Yeah. Um, something basically to the extent that, you know, they've forgotten more about central banking than we'll ever know. And so when you start to criticise central bankers because we think we know better, mm. there's a very, very, very good chance that they actually do know better. They might be mm. wrong, but they're coming from much more solid historical and economic base simply because they've devoted their lives to this stuff they've access to all the information so at some level i don't want to be critical of of, of the rba i am a i kind of wish on one level they'd increase rates more quickly when mm. they had the chance so i'd rather rates be a quarter or half a point higher than they are now i don't think the economy's in such terrible shape that we need lo- rates this low uh, but either way i think holding their fire until i really as you say see the data showing something i think is pretty smart you know what i'm going to vote for rba there you go Vote un- one, Philip Lowe. Un- un- unequivocally, that's very easy. I'll vote for RBA. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure they're standing, but if they do, uh, they get have my your vote. vote. Yeah. There we go. Not the Motley Fool Party? Uh, I- I'd vote for the RBA. Oh, the RBA is doing an awesome job. You're here. killing me here. Yeah, you know, you've got to give credit to people who are doing a good job, and they're doing a good job. You know, oh, a pat on the back for them. Well, you mentioned good jobs. We're about to go from the sublime to, well, a whole lot worse. <laughs> real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. 
Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Speaking of a whole lot worse, three little letters, mate. B, O, and Q. It's not bugger off quickly. It's the Bank of Queensland. Although it may well have been exactly that because the numbers weren't pretty. The, the, look, we've talked for a little while and we'll talk for a little bit longer about what's going on with banking more broadly. But good old good old BOQ, Banking Queensland, really – so here's, here's, here's a, um, a paragraph from the AFR. The, the, the reporter was James Ayres is his name. Um, and so he wrote, wrote – oh, well, I'll read a little bit of it. Um, BOQ said its cash earnings were down. Its interest margin was tighter. Its cost-to-income ratio was up. Its earnings per share was down. Income was down. Its quality capital levels were lower. The loan impairment expense was higher. And its return on equity had fallen by more than a percentage point. He could have just said everything was bad. Then he said, it has also cut its interim, interim dividend as the regional bank's acting boss of the Royal Commission will result in higher costs. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> that is as damning a paragraph and a bit as I think I've ever read. Yeah. Um, they're not the first company to get into trouble. So to be fair, I'm not suggesting that these guys are in, a worse, in worse shape or have, have a worse performance than any other company ever before. But gee, when, he's, when you write it like that, that's a tour de force of just ugliness, right? Yeah. So it, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. I mean, let, let's, do, let's do a couple of big ones. So firstly, let's get the regulatory stuff out of the way. The bank's blaming the Royal Commission, saying, well, because there's a Royal Commission, our costs are higher. Um, that's probably, uh, you know, objectively true because there are more costs, both in terms of the work they had to do, frankly, in case they were called for the Royal Commission, the change they're going to have to make as a result. Now, whether you blame the commission or, frankly, you blame the fact the banks were too light on costs previously and not doing the right jobs in the first place, it's hard, it's hard to say, well, they made us do the right thing. It's their fault. So, well, you should have done the right thing in the first place. So we'll, we'll, we'll give them half a mark for the fact that that is a genuine cost impost they're going to have to bear. Mm. Now, the market probably could have expected it. Certainly, the bank should have. Let's go to some of the bigger issues, though. So, and, and frankly, if you if you're not a BOQ shareholder, stick with us because this impacts not only the not only BOQ but also the rest of the banks. And because our banks are around a third or forty percent of the market, kind of in fact impacts the whole ASX. So, just stick with us for a second. The interest margin was tighter. Hmm. Now, this is the this is the so called for those who watch or read a little bit of financial television or radio here. You have the NIMS or the NIM, hmm. the net interest margin difference between the cost of the funds and the price they're selling them for effectively it's gross margin in anyone else's language right if you buy inventory for twenty dollars you sell it for thirty your gross margin is ten dollars that difference between the two banks will borrow money at pick some numbers two percent lend it at three and a half percent the net interest margin is 1.5 percent or 150 basis points that's the net interest margin you want that either holding or growing because otherwise you're making less gross margin and that hurts right through the PL. BOQ can't do it, mate. What's going on? Well, number one, we should remember that BOQ is a regional bank. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think regional banks have and more. We're not, just, we're not just bagging Queenslanders here, are we? No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, we have lots of colleagues in, uh, in Queensland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, shout out to our favorite our favorite Maroons. Yeah. There aren't many of them because we're, yeah. we're blue supporters, but yeah. there's a few Maroons we don't like. And then their clock doesn't move and all those things. So I mean, that's, that's a completely different ballgame. Well, game, they don't have faded curtains like us. Yeah, exactly. That's a start. So, yeah, that's a start. So, right. so anyways, yeah, we. This is not a Queensland specific problem. No, it's it's, not. it's just the fact that you know, as a regional bank, their cost of borrowing is higher mm -hmm. than you know. Effectively, like our big banks can go to the bond markets. So bond markets basically mean you know borrow money overseas mm -hmm. very easily and uh, borrow at a pretty good rate, right? Um, uh, people would demand a higher rate from somebody like BOQ. Mm -hmm. 
Because they're smaller, they're more smaller, regional, more concentrated, more, regional, more concentrated. You know, they might have more exposure to you know certain types of loans. A lot that of might credit be. rating, I think, which is kind of the base reason. Yeah, why. yeah. So the credit rating would be lower, maybe because of the type of loans they have. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the, the loan book is not viewed as maybe as high quality. Could yep. be just as high quality. Again, I don't know anything about the loan book to make a comment, but sure. Um, so I think th- th- that plays a big role, right? I mean, but th- the other larger picture is, I mean, we are, you know, we are going from cheap money to at least less cheap or more expensive, <laughs> <laughs> however you want to call That's it. How I put it, yes. Um, so that that is not a good, you know, place to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, co- combine that with you know record high property prices, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's less room for growth there. There is you know pressure in the you know the borrowing costs. It's not a good place for a banker um, yes. to be. It's very um, true. Add to that, as you said, you know regulatory costs, whatever it is. I mean, you know whether they were supposed to have it in the past or now, but they do have it now. They didn't have it in the past because they you know decided they didn't need it. Um, uh, so it's it's not a happy. Mm. combination I, mm. I think if anything i'd say that you know um population growth is still going to be there right and our cities are very desirable so there's a lot of population growth happening yes uh which means there's going to be you know there's going to be buildings and construction and there's going to be loans taken out for businesses and homes and uh you know and people maybe the investing uh people investing in property has gone down relatively recently maybe it'll pick up again yep. so uh, yeah, I, I I don't think it's like dire dire, but you know, it, like banks. It's not pretty though. It's it, it's not pretty, but it's like cyclic, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, they're at the cycle. They're probably you know past the peak. Maybe and, we don't have cycles. We got twenty eight years without the recession. Yeah, but you know, this, this is, is growth right until you know, uh, second start of the right and it, until moment. Yeah, morning, but, but maybe you know, maybe it's like it, it's the realization that we are maybe entering a phase of you know not so much growth and yeah. you know little growth and maybe. Um, yeah, and that's basically what the interim CEO is basically saying that, you know, and, and the cost of capital also you have to realize, right? Mm-hmm. So the amount of capital that they have to, essentially the amount of money that the shareholders have to foot to ensure that the books are, um, you know, all good and within the capital requirements of um, ARPA yep. uh, has also gone up, right? Yep. So that's, and that, that's, you know, in, in a way it's a good thing, right? Because overall it basically means that um, our banks are going to be better and, uh, you know, uh, in the event of uh, some financial distress, you know, our banks are not going to, you know, collapse, uh, collapse and run dry. <laughs> we so, love that. Uh, so we'd love that. And, and this is all good in that, that sense. So I think, you know, so they are taking a lot of costs, so to say, but I think it's, it, it's costs that... Um, and being a regulated business such as banking, you know, they, they have a, mm. an indirect obligation to society, right? So uh, that's the cost of doing business in a regulated industry, a heavily regulated industry, is mm. that, you know, there, there are these costs and they have to bear that cost. Right. So They do, they do. It's going to be an ugly, ugly future. Also, the cost to income ratio is up. That kind of makes sense, right? When your income's down, <laughs> unless your costs fall further, yeah. your cost to income ratio goes up. And again, if you think about this, banks are funny businesses, mate. I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you've been a bank shareholder for years and you're used to reading bank financial statements, this stuff's all second nature. I, I kind of feel like most people own some banks, of course, but also general kind of commercial manufacturing slash retail businesses are easier to understand. Mm. So if you think about cost to income ratio, what you're pretty much saying is all that gross margin we just talked about, the net interest margin as the banks like to call it, um, you think of all your costs below that. And it would normally be your marketing costs and your staff costs and your admin costs and the photocopier and the copy mm. cars and all that stuff. Those costs, in theory, if you're growing, if you're, if you're running a good business and you can afford to and you're in a good position brand-wise or, or, frankly, with your competitive advantages, you can normally grow your sales faster than your costs. And that means you've got growing net profit margins. So not only is your volume up, but the, per, the dollars you make per unit sold, per widget, to use the mm-hmm. uh, official term that accountants and economics teachers like to use, uh, for every widget you make, um, you're, you're making more cents per widget, right? Which means you're doubling your, your benefit because your volume's up, the amount of money you make per unit are up. That compounds really nicely. 
The reverse, though, unfortunately happens more often than not because it's very, very, very hard to cut costs fast enough to offset falling, in this case, net interest margins and, and, and frankly, property prices falling, right? So you've got the combination, again, of the units. In this case, they're, they're, they're lending dollars, so dollars are their inventory. Dollars are going down because they're, they're, they're lending less. They're making less money per dollar lent because they have to pay more for the, the debt they're getting from overseas. That combination is is kind of a bit ugly, right? Because you simply can't sack enough people, close enough branches, shut down enough data centers, do all that kind of stuff quickly enough to offset the falling money coming in the front door. I think I have a comment on that one. I think what I think is happening here is that they're not embracing technology fast enough. Right. And if they had embraced technology fast enough, um, I think I think they're good at you know banks are very good at adopting technology you know at at the at the level of the consumer. But yeah, because Australia's banks at a consumer facing level, Australia's banks are among the fastest in the world, right? Yeah, like you know the highest, for example, one of the highest penetrations of Apple Pay is in Australia, not right. in the US. Paywave, right? tap and go, that yeah, general go. technology. Yeah, yep. but I think yep. they're not doing that same thing at at the banking level, right? I think maybe if they are um, you know they, they use technology more intelligently, maybe more proactively inside the banks, more bitcoins. <laughs> more bitcoins <laughs> what no? could go wrong <laughs> um I, I think maybe that's an area hmm. that um you know there may, maybe there are some short-term costs but that could actually um you know like i mean why aren't there you know they should have more like online banking and you know basically not have uh, most of the lending could for example be done online that should reduce in in, hmm. in theory some costs right i think so, what i hear you saying is they should be sucking more people and replacing them with computers is that what you're saying well I'm just saying that the banks need to be more efficient, <laughs> I, I, and, and I think you know a lot of those people. If they if they sack people, if you know either they get redeployed elsewhere or those people find different jobs, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know that that always happens in an, in an economy. So no, I think that's fair. I, look, I, that you've you've touched on a point. So we're going to talk about broadly the banking sector more generally. You've kind of taken us there anyway, which is great. I I think investors and frankly bank staff, I, I'm I'm sad to say for those people, really need to get ready for the next wave of bank branch closures. I think to your point about technology. The, the most obviously under, um, what's that, under efficient? The, basically, branches aren't what they used to be. If you've been to a branch recently, you're not going with wads of cash, handing them over across a bulletproof glass desk and then having someone count it out and give it back. Um, you're going in, you're sitting in a nice little couch, you, you're talking mm. to someone who looks at the computer screen and says, yes, here's the product for you or the, the, the loan you need or whatever it is. I just, I, I think you're going to find that there are simply too many of those branches and they're okay while sales have been growing or while income has been growing because you can kind of cover those costs. I just, if you look around and think, man, how much value is genuinely being created? And I'm sure there's people working hard and I'm sure their customers are happy that they're there and I get all that. So this is not a, not a value judgment on the people. But from an organizational perspective, a bank CEO has got to be looking around saying, hey, if we close down a third of our branches, maybe people got to travel another suburb or two for the very, very occasional mm. in-branch transaction. I think I've been to a branch, I've been with my mother-in-law once, I think, in the last year on my own account, I don't remember the last time I was in a branch. It would have been four or five years ago, I think. I have not been, I think, in the last five, six years right, to right. a branch. And so that, that's the reality, right? So I think, unfortunately for those people, look, banks are going to get desperate because top line is going to struggle. And if you can't grow the top line, you're a bank CEO and you want to keep your job, you've got to find cost savings. The branches have got to be in the firing line. We went through a, a, a kind of a stream of this once about 10 years ago now. It could be, could be off by four or five years, frankly, each side. Um, but there was a big, big range of closures. There's been a couple in my area that have closed recently. I think we're going to see a heap more branch closures. I would imagine this calendar year or next, we'll, be, we'll see another round of closures. And I think once one bank starts, because it's kind of a PR risk, I think the mm. others will follow pretty quickly. Exactly. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, from bank cuts to, well, the house always wins. We're going to talk about 
Well, that was a bit of a pun, right? So Wins, let's think about Wind Resorts. And for those who don't know Wind Resorts, one of the largest and most successful casino operators in the US, helmed by Steve Wynn, the uh, the man who started the business, who stepped back from executive management but still owns and controls the company, lobbed a bid, or at least started discussions, to take over James Packer's Crown Resorts. Mm-hmm. Now, this was all under the cover of, I say, kind of darkness, but it was all done in, you know, in, in, in secrecy, you know, confidential terms. They had a bit of a chat. They talked about, you know, how the deal might get done, some cash, some wind shares. Apparently, Packer was open to the conversation. And then the story broke in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And as as is required, and we'll, don't 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 rant on me just yet. I'll give you a chance to rant in a minute. As is required by the continuous disclosure requirements of the ASX, the company was kind of forced to come out and respond to the media reports. And yeah, yeah, okay, we've yeah, we've been talking to them, and here's the details. And then Steve Wynn, or at least Wynn as a company, kind of got the irrits and decided that well, if you guys want to talk about this out of out of school, this was supposed to be confidential. The fact it's not confidential anymore, well, we're out. We're taking our bat and ball, mm. our big big checkbook. We're going home. You guys, bad luck. You've lost us. Mm. That's kind of a whole range of, of kind of complicated components there, mate. Firstly, I don't know about you. I didn't imagine James Packer being prepared to sell out of his effectively only public market investment. His company owns 46% of Crown, I want to say. He's kind of stepping back and would, would have been stepping back and walking away. Uh, and Steve Wynn, frankly, Crown may have been rebranded Win, or maybe maybe they took the Crown brand into, into Vegas or somewhere else and made it another brand in the casino empire. I'm kind of a bit surprised, firstly, that Packer was prepared to sell. Secondly, it seems a bit churlish of Steve Wynn to say, well, because you made it public, we're walking away. So I, I don't know about uh, you, but, you know, $4.6 billion is, was, <laughs> I think, what uh, was, would have been the payday. It's a lot of money. Um, I would take it. I, I would take it too, yes. <laughs> so, so maybe James Packer thought he would take it too. Um, <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? The deal was going to go ahead. But he has stepped, he has stepped back, right, from active uh, management and involvement, right? Mm. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a 4.6 billion is a lot of money. <laughs> so, um, so that's that. Uh, I think with the, I have a view of continuous disclosures. I think the continuous disclosure thing, in in this particular case, for example, mm. they probably wanted to continue with the discussions in uh, confidence until there was a formal offer, right, uh, or a more firm offer, at, mm-hmm. which would then have to be disclosed to the market, right. And I think the view that they took was um, this being disclosed early on basically means that they're trying to encourage other, you know, other bidders maybe right. try to bid up the price, you know, trying to see what the other. Ah. Maybe, uh, so you reckon uh, there's a bit of a bit of uh, deliberate kind of licking here from Crown potentially. Well, I'm not saying that. Uh, I, I think you know that's might be their view. It, it could just be that some low, you know, somebody lower down the chain basically leaked it to the AFR, right, or leaked it somewhere, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, news does get leaked, right? It and, does. and I mean, it's a, it's a report. It is a reporter's job to find news. Yes. And and they're good at it. Sure. <laughs> so so There's I would people who are prepared to talk from what we find well, exactly, out. Exactly. Exactly. So I mean, it's not necessarily the reporter's fault in any way, or the newspaper's fault sure, in any way. Right? Sure. There's a newspaper's job no, to find. Now they're reporting the news. Yeah. They're reporting true. the news. True. So it's the it's, I think I think the continuous disclosure, though, I mean, uh, once it leaked, then I, I get the continuous disclosure comes into play, mm-hmm. and therefore they had to disclose. I mean, I, I'm not personally a fan of the continuous disclosure, because I think the continuous disclosure basically means that there's like a drip feed news. Like it's a, it's a, To mm-hmm. me, many companies look like they're on intravenous fluids all the time. Yep. They're always releasing a little bit of information because they're always scared. Oh, here's the rant, here's the rant. Uh, and, and they're always scared that, you know, they're going to get into trouble. <laughs> and and it's like for, for investors, it's like, okay, well, you told me that that deal happened. Oh, or this deed happened, you know, mm-hmm. just 
you know, we understand a business is always going to, at least I, I think that a business is always going to have deals happening, right? Yeah. And, you know, a business is supposed to be in the business of doing business because if it's not doing I think business, on that. <laughs> if it's not doing business, there's a big problem. <laughs> so, so I don't want to know, you know, come back to me in like, you know, in six months time, right? Yeah. You know, continuous disclosure is actually worse than quarterly reporting. Like, I mean, you know, it's, Ooh, it's, it's, them, it's, it's, words. it's, it's really, really bad okay. uh, in, in my, in my books. And it it's just, me why. It, it, it's, it's just, you know, it's, I think a company, especially many of the smaller companies, you think about the smaller companies we have got on the ASX, you know, some, some of them are like $50 million in market cap. Some mm-hmm. of them are like $20 million in market cap. Mm-hmm. How can they afford to actually continuously disclose information, have that, you know, disclosure arrangements, have the people to do that, uh, you know, all the things that you need to do to actually make sure that you're releasing the information, you're doing mm-hmm. it correctly. Mm-hmm. Why not instead? And many of these companies actually have a hard time trying to just get their books right during the, you know, they the sure. report, they, you know, they put their financials out on it. Oh, there was a mistake. Or then they put their financials out. And, oh, oh, there was another mistake. And then they re- again, release <laughs> it, right? So if you can't get your books out yeah. properly yep. during the half year, uh, what's the point of this, right? I think what I would rather have is that every half year, half year sounds like a good, good, you know, mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. Every six months you're telling me, um, what you're doing, you know, and that, you know, disclose the big deals that you've made or big, you know, movements that has happened as a business. And, you mm. know, that's, that's great. Mm. Um, you know, otherwise, if you're going to release information, I would say that release information without financials. So like, you know, you signed a big client. Sure. Say I've signed a big client. Mm. I don't delete, you know, uh, again, don't release the financials there. Right. I, I, I don't know. I just find it that it mm. just makes it really hard uh, for investors. And there's a lot of speculation that goes on. There's a lot of trading that happens around those news items. There's a lot of probably leaking that happens around those news. So again, I, I just find it it's not that helpful. Mm. I will. I will. I will half agree with you. I think we may have talked about this before. I think. So here's the thing. I think the. Rules around continuous disclosure are supposed to make sure that the market is fully informed at all times. And what it's designed to stop is people with some information that isn't publicly available being able to buy or sell shares effectively with an uninformed or a partially informed market. So if I was to know that uh, The Motley Fool is not a public company, so we'll talk about it. If Motley Fool was going to launch a great new product next week and I knew it was coming and it was going to double our revenues, I could buy shares today. The service starts tomorrow or next week and then sales double, profits quadruple and I make a squillion dollars to sell my shares in three weeks' time. Under that sort of scenario, the, the rules about the continuous disclosure are supposed to require that I probably internally, if I knew that information, I shouldn't trade anyway, but that's kind of the point, that the market at least as fully informed as it can be about what the what the material events um, that are impacting a company are and how the market should think about them. So that, that's the that's the positive. Now, like everything, there's always side effects, there's always negative outcomes and all that kind of stuff. I think that's what you're talking about now. So insider trading though, right? That that's that what, what you're explaining is insider trading. That is basically illegal. But that's the idea. Right. The idea of continuous disclosure is supposed to be to minimize the chance of any of that happening, and particularly second and third hand information, right? So I tell my wife, she tells her tennis coach, he tells his wife, she tells, you know what, at some point, any information that's out there in the public that, that is a partially informed market, that, that's the idea of continuous disclosure in the first place, is to make sure the market is as fully informed as possible at all times, so that there is the, that minimizes the chance of, you know, being able to trade inside information. So the fact that it, Effectively, continuous disclosure is is an is a adjunct to the insider trading rules to make sure that they are as enforceable and, frankly, as unlikely to um, be required because insider trading is so incredibly difficult to to demonstrate at any particular point in time. It's also supposed to stop 
things like analyst briefings being given to some people and not somebody else. So in the US, they have Reg FD, Fair Disclosure, they call it, same kind of idea, is you can't just say to your mates at Investment Bank 1, 2, and 3, hey, here's what we're doing, here's what's coming up, here's the most recent set of numbers. That's not inside of trading because you're sharing it with the community. At one point, it was actually completely legal to do that, right? You could simply tell people whenever you wanted, whatever you wanted, and there was no obligation to tell everybody at the same time. So the broad idea is that if there's information out there, it must be released to everybody at the same time on a public platform rather than selectively disclosed to certain people. Mm. My, my point would be that you know the problem with any of these things trying to you know block insider trading. If if, if the goal is to do, do stop insider trading, I think the insider trading can still happen because you know people could just trade before the news has been released. What because, about selective disclosure though? Um, select, so I I think you know again in terms of selective disclosure, I think instead of the companies announcing every deal that they think is meaningful, yep. they could just wait until so non disclosure and and have inside company rules that basically say that look you if if you are privy to information that um, is important and market moving and and you know here's the other thing right uh, like people who work for example in um, big pu- big public companies they're working on projects they know stuff but you know what most people will tell you that's very hard to actually act on that information and actually make money because mm. you know um, most of the time you actually don't know enough to use it to your advantage, right? So the, the, in most cases, the information that is really pertinent to make actually informed trading that you actually can make some money mm. is relatively held by a relatively small number of people, which basically means that it's basically held, you know, at the, the C-suit level or, mm. or, or you know, just somewhere just, just below that, you know. But I think those people should be under higher scrutiny anyways um, and their share buying back. You know, so we have disclosures about their share buying back, right? So we could always go back to, mm-hmm. you know, if, if an executive buys shares, we, that's disclosed to market. And then later on, you know, we figure out there's an announcement. Well, we can read link it back. Right. So so I think that, you know, it's harder for them to do such stuff. But that's that's what I think. But anyways, I, I know I'm in the minority. <laughs> I don't think you're, no, I think you're right. I mean, that, that is the, every every action has a consequence, right? And so the regulator's job is to try and, provide as much well the best possible regulatory environment which minimizes the compliance cost maximizes the public benefit um and whether they get it right or wrong that's always an open debate i think it's, yeah. a, it's a worthwhile conversation right at some level they have to say well if i make companies do this thing does that improve or reduce the uh the ability of the market to trade in an informed and, and efficient way currently the continuous disclosure rules are their best guess at getting that resolved i think net net i'm still in favor of them rather than against them i think it's better than not um, quite frankly, I'm, I'm, I have a much bigger issue with companies putting out um, pumpy press releases that are kind of or ASX releases that are thinly disguised press releases saying how wonderful they are. Right? I think if we if we change anything, they would do that anyway. That's the other thing, right? They don't need to be forced to do that. If they can put out a press release saying, "Guess what? We just signed up eighty four thousand customers, and we're going to be trillionaires tomorrow." Um, to the extent they can, they can or do or want to do that, mm. they're not compelled to do that. They do that because they're trying to. Pump the share prices. Probably I can say that because uh, I'm not naming individual companies, so I'm not going to get sued by anybody. Um, there is a lot, particularly at the smaller end of the market, as you say, mate. A lot of, I wouldn't even call it necessary market manipulation, but it's 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 way 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 over the top. Press releases that are designed to get the share price higher, almost as the as Promotional. the goal, rather than as as a desire to inform the market and keep the market, um, you know, knowing what's going on. Cool. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, we're going to finish up with the full mailbag. We have one question, for, and we've got a bit of an announcement in a minute, but we'll finish off with a question first. From Valabav Mahuta, Mahutra, 
Sorry, my apologies, Valhav, Valhav, if I've pronounced your name badly, which I'm almost certain that I have. My apologies. Uh, He says, uh, hey, what's your view on ETFs? Also, is it advisable to switch super funds? Any drawbacks of switching them? I'm new to super staff and with REST, which is the Retail Employees Super Trust, I think, at the moment. Not sure if I should be happy with the REST performance in September 2015. That's a pretty good question. So let's take them in separate parts. Let's talk about ETFs first. We've mentioned ETFs a (laughs) few times, mate. So just broadly... And can you can you give me the so here's the thing about ETFs that I think we kind of assume right people say ETFs most of us think of a proxy for an index right so an ASX 200 ETF is what we think we think broad market index fund that's kind of what we're led to believe now in the US there are more ETFs than stocks now mm-hmm. because they anything can be an ETF you and I could put together the Doc and Scott managed ETF list it tomorrow. And it would simply be a vehicle for a managed fund, which is completely appropriate, by the way. I'm not saying that as a bad thing, but that's not exactly an index, low-cost index ETF either, right? So mm-hmm. what is an ETF and what are the different types of ETFs out there? Okay. So ETF basically stands for Exchange Traded Fund. Right. And it's a it's a proxy, essentially, for holding multiple stocks. I'm going to guess that's a fund traded on an exchange. Am yeah, I right? Yeah, it's a basically a fund. So it's, 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 a, it's a way <laughs> of holding multiple stocks in yes. different proportions. Yes. Uh, using one ticker or one instrument and buying it and selling it, right? right? So it provides, a, it provides a platform. So basically ETF on the market basically mm-hmm. means you can buy something like an index, for example, as you said, uh, all in one transaction without right. actually buying the individual companies. So, so you could already do that with a managed fund, right? But it was off market. So back in yes. the, the very first ETF was, or the very first index fund, I should say, was Vanguard way back in the day. And they said, we will buy all the bits and pieces of the market in proportion. Yeah. Send us a check. And we'll give you a, a unit in the in the managed fund. And that was all done, not behind closed doors, because that sounds bad, but it wasn't done on an exchange-traded market. There was no way to buy and sell with that. Right now, they come say, can you please send me a check with my money back, please? Yeah. The, the ETF move was to take that managed fund idea and let you simply buy and sell it on an exchange as you would with any other stock, right? Yeah. So with the managed fund, for example, there might be, you know, some managed funds will allow you to exit on a weekly basis, right? right? So they're going to be weekly pricing. Some give you a daily pricing. That's kind right. of a hassle because I've got my Comsec account already. And right. I just, I, if I could just buy and sell right. like I buy and sell BHP or Commonwealth exactly. Bank or Telstra. And the money would show up into your bank account right here. In, in, in you can buy it on your brokerage and you have a price, a bid and an ask mm-hmm. every moment. And it's very liquid in that sense, right? right? right, right. Um, so that's the biggest advantage. One of the biggest advantages is that Basically, it's a liquid way of accessing cool. funds. So it's a managed fund on the market. It's a managed fund on the market, right? Now, there are different types. One, the the biggest one that you talk, we talk about mm-hmm. uh, is the index right. funds, right? So you, there's the ASX 200, which basically is uh, mimicking the performance of the top 200 companies on the ASX. Right. Uh, or it mimics, actually, to be more specific, it typically would be an S&P ASX 200 list, right? So S&P and ASX together make this list of the top 200 largest companies and then decide what the market caps is and then proportionally weighted. <laughs> yep. Right? Um, so BHP is 10% of the ASX 200 index. Yeah. And so it'd be 10% of a index tracking ETF. Exactly. Then then you can get similar indices uh, from uh, foreign markets. So on the ASX, for example, you could buy the S&P 500, which okay. is the 500 largest again, which is the S&P's list of 500 largest companies on the on the US. And that's exchange. kind of the dominant US market index, right? When someone says, how's the exactly. US market going? They say, well, the S&P 500 up 5%. Exactly. You can, with Australian dollars, on the ASX, with your current brokerage account, buy those. Buy effectively 
access to mirroring with a little bit taken out for fees, yep. the S&P 500. Exactly. Okay. You could do the same thing for the NASDAQ 100, which is the right. list of the 100x financials companies on the NASDAQ, right? Largely uh, tech-heavy, kind of Googles, they, Apples, Amazons. Yeah, I mean, you've got some Coca-Cola. I think, I think you've got like Pepsi there, for example. You do have Pepsi on there, actually, yeah. <laughs> so so it's, that's why I said exponentials. I mean, it is tech-heavy, but it's, you know. It's not pure know, tech. It's not pure tech. <laughs> so that's that. So those are the indices. And you can do the same thing. You could buy like, you know, Korea. You could buy Europe. Mm. You could buy Europe. 50, you could buy the, you know, then you can get esoteric, right? You can buy, for example, things like the largest 100 companies of the world. Okay. Right. Again, right here on the ASX, you'd be a mix of stuff from Japan and Europe and you, nice. in, in so the world. Shell and GlaxoSmithKline and Pfizer yeah, exactly. and Swatch. All, and all, all those sort of things. Nice. Then you could get more esoteric <laughs> and you could say, okay, I want to buy a particular sector. So again, okay. there are sector ETFs, yep. right? So you could buy a tech sector ETF, which okay. could be again, um, you know, country specific mm-hmm. or could be world specific or could be region specific you could buy uh things like you know biotech you could buy uh technology you could buy telecommunications you could buy and here's what gets a bit messy right because if you buy say a tech etf yeah you're not necessarily getting index weighted exposure at low cost in some cases you're getting somebody some manager somewhere is charging you potentially a pretty penny to pick his own tech stocks and just roll him into a fund right so yes it's on that theme but there's no obligation for it to be necessarily index weighted. No, so I'll I'll, I'll just just chip in a little bit there. So it. I think the so the, the two types there. So you could buy say an S and P tech ETF. So right. the S and P being the uh, standard standard, Poor, standard yes. Poor, they've made a tech ETF. Um, or, or a tech index, right. and then somebody's basically running it and basically taking a fee. That's That I would still call it as passive. Yes. It's not active in the sense that somebody else is making it. It's just, you know, doesn't, uh, things don't change that often. So you get exposed to tech, the, tech, the, the largest tech companies weighted by market yeah, cap, yeah. effectively, like you would if you're buying the ASX yeah, you could index. In, yeah, so you could buy, you know, like you could, you could buy a mining index, for example, right? right? You could buy mining, you can buy gold miners, you can Unless buy all sorts of relatively things. low fee because it's, pa- it's passive. It's passive. In other words, there's no, right. and difference between Passive and active for our, for our listeners. Passive is when a, a, no manager adds their own mental effort to it. They just exactly. simply say, buy it in the proportion that the index is already set. And they simply do that. And just you know, there's a trader at a desk somewhere who probably doesn't, probably algorithm these days, but who would increase and decrease the number of positions based on how much money is flowing yeah. in and out of the fund. Yeah. Then then you get to sort of indices, indices which are a little bit more specialized where, you know, where you're looking at, you know, some combination of, say, sector and valuation. Okay. Right. So you could this say- is where either... A manager making arbitrary calls or relying on a formula they've already predetermined. Exactly. To change, and this is where this is where it kind of gets a bit blurred, right? Because those exactly. are higher fee. Yeah. Hopefully higher return because otherwise yeah. the manager's not earning his money. That's where it gets a little bit messy, right? A little bit yeah. tricky. It little it's it it in a, in a way it becomes like stock picking, but maybe on a group of stocks, yeah. right? So I mean, you know, uh, like they're good and bad things, right? I mean, so you need to know exactly how the index or the ETF actually works, yeah. or what the ETF's constituents are and how they're actually picked. If you understand that, then you can maybe make some broad theme-based decisions, right? So if somebody mm-hmm. wanted to uh, invest, say, for example, in tech, which is, you know, multi, but, you know, um, and value, there are there are mm-hmm. ETFs that allow you to do that. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted to invest in Asia and tech, you there are ETFs that allow you to do that, right? <laughs> if you wanted to just have exposure to mm-hmm. S&P 500 or the SX 200, you can do that. So I think it, it becomes... Uh, in a way, it becomes a lot like stock picking, yeah. right? And right, because you start the, the more the more active you try and be, yeah. the greater the chance you, your results are going to diverge from the index. index. And so, for us, generally speaking, most of the time in Australia, so let me let me try and phrase it better. In Australia, if we were going to say to people, "Hey, you should think about an ETF," we're normally saying to them, "Look, if you don't want to pick your own stocks, 
you should at least get the market average return. So buy a super low cost index ETF. That way you'll at least get the return of the ASX 200, for example. And then we might say to people, well, you want some international exposure. So buy a diversified low cost international ETF and get the rest of the world's total result. When you start getting more specific, you're either saying, here's a way to get access to something that isn't on the ASX at all, or if we very rarely do this, but generally people might say, well, I want to go with a particular manager or a particular strategy that I think is going to be market beating, and I'm going to let that person do it for me. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll add just one point that, you know, one one interesting thing that one can do with ETFs is, you know, given the large proliferation of ETFs, especially on the, you know, the, the number of ETFs is increasing rapidly on the ASX as well. <laughs> it really is. Right? Um, one of the things that you could do is it, it allows you to build diversification yeah. into your portfolio yeah. and it also you could think of it as, as, as like a hedge as well in in some sense because you mm-hmm. you can you know if you think there's you know you want to have some exposure that helps you if there are some problems in the local economy mm-hmm. then that etf actually is is actually better than having cash right you can have a hedge using cash but you can also have an etf that is not correlated to your market yeah. that allows you to hedge it. So, I mean, there are users of it. I think they're good instruments if you know what you're doing, if you know what fees you're paying. Again, mm-hmm. you know, look at the fees, look at the strategy. Um, yeah. So, Balapab, I hope that helps. I, we've tried to give you a broad view of ETFs. So, I'll give you, I'll give you my, how I would use them and we're docking add back in after his thoughts before. Generally speaking, I would say to people, we think you can beat the market by picking stocks. And that's what we do as a, as a job, right? So you expect us to say that. And if we're doing our job well, we will achieve that and we're worth our money. If not, well, then frankly, we'd say go and buy the ETF. So part of the part of the answer, honestly, is ETF gives you the mar- a broad index ETF, let me be clear, gives you the market return uh, of both either local or an international market or markets, plural. Um, and you can just simply buy those and go fishing, go shopping, as we've said before, right? So that, that's a really simple, easy way to do it. On top of that, if you wanted to, you could then say, well, I want that diversification of Doc's point. I want to get exposure to, say, tech companies that aren't in Australia. We don't have a very big tech sector. You can buy an international tech ETF and do that. You could say, well, my job's in Australia, my house is in Australia, my income, you know, my portfolio's in Australia. I want some international exposure just because it makes sense to be diversified. I'm going to get international exposure using a broad index ETF. Generally speaking, I'll speak for myself, Doc, I would, nest- I would steer away from an actively managed ETF because the fees are going to be higher and because unless you know that manager is going to beat the market, you're taking that stock-specific risk that Doc talked about, the stock-picking risk that Doc talked about. And if you're paying a, a fixed fee or, sorry, percentage as a, as a, to get that, that's what starts to get a little bit a little bit dicey for me. You might as well buy the index, right, unless you know that manager is going to be able to beat the market consistently. So that, that's something to be a little bit careful of. And then secondly, just be, you know, again, do you really need that access? Do you really need that exposure? There's high-yield funds on the ASX, for example, that are using options and stuff to try and deliver higher income than bank dividends. And there's a whole lot of other stuff around. Um, Managers try and dress up these things because they think they might be exciting and fun and they want you to throw them some money. And hey, if you genuinely think that's the right way to invest, then we would say go for it, right? But just be a little bit careful about how you invest that money just to... Just to be, just to be, to make sure you're not getting taken for a ride. Basically, it's exciting and it's fun and it's interesting. But if you're not going to beat the market, buy the market. That's that's the the bottom line, I think, when it comes to ETFs. Buying the market means buying a broad-based, very low-cost index ETF, a Vanguard ETF, are the ones I prefer, just because they're a not-for-profit company, meaning that there's every chance the funds will be as low as they possibly can be. You're not you're not lining anyone else's pocket with profit. Not that we don't like profits, but it's no point paying costs you don't have to. How do I go, Doc? I think I, I agree with you. I think that, that hits all the ba- the basic points. Now, we're going to keep the second half of the question, mate, because we're out of time. But oh, next cool. week, fools, stay tuned because we've got a special Good Friday edition. 
No, Doc and I are going to drag our backsides in here next Friday. We're going to record it in about a minute's time. But next week it'll be released. So hopefully by the time you're listening to our next podcast, it will be Good Friday and we'll give you some Easter holiday listening. But for now, that wraps us up. Before we go, don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast, and we hope you will, through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a big rating on iTunes. Tell your friends, leave us a review. The more ears that hear, the more people that can know, the more people that can know, hopefully, the better they can invest. And that's what we're here for after all. And don't forget, you can get a little bit of foolishness straight to your inbox now by going to fool.com.au forward slash Triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.